Would you please join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we do sing, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. We have gathered this morning in the truth of your amazing grace, in the afterglow of Jesus' death and resurrection. And just as those extremes were brought together in the weekend that changed the world, so we have come together in the midst of death and life, at the intersection, in the overlap between sorrow and joy. Having just celebrated the eternal life of your son, we endured yet another week of mass shootings and deadly violence. Having rejoiced that because of Jesus' life, everything has changed, we persevered through another week wherein much of the world demonstrated that it is very much still stuck in the same old things of sin and death. And the tension sometimes pushes us to the limits of what our hearts can bear, Heavenly Father. Yet we know, Heavenly Father, that while death and life come together for now, they are not evenly matched. That out of the silence, the lion indeed roared. Christ, you rose from the dead. You ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And you will return, and life will win, and death will be no more. You will return, and the old things will be discarded once and for all. And in the meantime, we can trust and rely on Christ's rule and reign from the right hand of the Father. So, Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, we take a moment now to lift up to you the burdens that are on our hearts in silent prayer to bring them to you now. All we have lifted to you, we trust you have received. In Jesus' name. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11 says, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Thank you, Julie. Well, today is the uh, second Sunday of Easter, and in some traditions, this is connected with Thomas, uh, because it was on the eighth day that Jesus appeared to Thomas, who had missed his first appearance to the disciples on the evening of the resurrection. See and believe, said Jesus to Thomas, and he responded, my Lord and my God. To which Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. But perhaps you have already put Easter behind you and have moved on. Perhaps you're now looking ahead to Memorial Day and the beginning of summer. 
but not so fast. I want to pause a little and reflect on religious calendars. In the beginning, God made the lights in the sky to separate the day from the night and serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. The sun, the moon, and the stars, since time immemorial, have been our timekeepers, dividing our time into days and months and years. And they give rhythm to a life on multiple levels. And part of that rhythm is the seasons, not just summer and winter, sea time and harvest, but also religious seasons, sacred times on our religious calendars. Now, perhaps you pay no attention at all to the sun, the moon, and the stars as timekeepers. You just look at your phone. But our religious calendars do pay attention to the sun, moon, and stars. And God gave Israel a religious calendar, commanding them to celebrate three annual festivals. Passover in the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the first month, uh, Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, in the third month, and Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, in the seventh month. And these were rooted in Israel's history. They were memorials to remind Israel of its history, that it had been liberated from bondage from Egypt into freedom, and it was bound for the promised land. And each of these feasts involved a meal in God's presence. Now, as Christians, we believe that Jesus reshaped that feast of Passover around himself, transforming the Passover meal into a meal about himself. The bread was now his body. The wine was now his blood. And he invited his disciples to repeat this in remembrance of him. And we do, do so still today. And we'll do so at the end of this service. This is the one festival commanded of Christians, though we tend not to think of it as a festival, as a feast. But fairly quickly, the early church did create a series of festivals. Now, these are not commanded in Scripture, but they have proven valuable in constructing, structuring the year, a liturgical year. And this year begins not with Jesus, but with four weeks of waiting and anticipation in Advent leading up to the celebration of the nativity of our Lord, the wonder of the incarnation. Next is Epiphany, the manifestation of Jesus to the Gentiles in the form of the Magi from the East, and the manifestation in baptism as the Father, Father's beloved in whom he is well pleased. Then there's another somber period of reflection in Lent, ending in the joy of Palm Sunday, but this soon becomes the somber time of Monday Thursday, of the so-called Good Friday, of Holy Saturday. But then the glorious celebration of Easter Sunday. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's try that again. He is risen. He is risen. Very good. But that's not the end. There are two more feasts that we so often forget. Ascension Day when we remember the Lord's return to heaven, back into his Father's presence, but now as a human being. And then ten days later is Pentecost, when God pours out his Spirit so that we can be the beneficiaries of what God has done in Christ Jesus, so that we can participate in the resurrection life of this new creation. And then follows a half a year of ordinary time. No festivals at all, 
but ordinary time of us seeking to live out our lives in light of what God has done in Christ Jesus and is continuing to do through His Spirit. And again, this liturgical year is not commanded of us in Scripture, but it has proven helpful for many, and its appeal seems to be growing as more and more evangelicals turn to liturgical churches, to Anglican churches, to Catholic or to Orthodox churches. And it has great value, and we have sought here at PBCC to pay a little more attention to it in recent years. It is rooted in history. Paying attention to it reminds us of our history and anchors us in that history. It anchors us in our founding narrative, the birth, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the pouring out of the Spirit to be God's empowering presence through Christ in us. But there are other narratives that seek to intrude into our lives. There's the narrative of nationalism. Now, it's quite all right to be patriotic, but religious nationalism is problematic. Whether it's Christian nationalism here in the US, Jewish nationalism in Israel, Islamic nationalism in Iran, or Hindu nationalism in India. And then there's the emoji calendar, which reflects the narrative of commerce, epitomized by the changing packaging of candy in the stores. From white snowmen at Christmas, to pink hearts at Valentine's Day, to green shamrocks at St. Patrick's Day, to fluffy yellow chicks at Easter, and on and on. Well, I've been thinking about calendars for a couple of reasons. Um, one is the convergence last week of the major festivals in the Muslim, Jewish, and Christian religious calendars. You may be aware of this, of Ramadan, Passover, and Easter all occurring at the same time, though they use different timekeepers. Last Monday, I was invited to speak on the topic of festivals and interfaith harmony at a iftar meal. And uh, that's the evening meal that ends the daily fast of Ramadan. And my talk included some of the thoughts that I've just shared. But I've also been thinking about the religious tension in Jerusalem during this convergence of festivals. Next month, 42 of us will go on tour to Israel. And uh, some have been nervous uh, looking at the tensions that there were last week in Jerusalem. But the major reason why I've been thinking about the church here, the liturgical cycle, is because of the book of Hebrews to which we return today. This book is all about Jesus. Christ is set before us. Indeed, that's my title for the series, Christ Before Us. And my sermon today is titled, We See Jesus. We look to Jesus so that we can persevere in our believing, just like Thomas. Now, the major event of Jesus' life that is highlighted in the book of Hebrews is not his birth, not his death, not his resurrection, but his ascension. It's not Christmas, nor Good Friday, nor Easter, but Ascension Day. Now, this may surprise you because we are so used to talking about the cross or the empty tomb. We talk of the finished work of Christ on the cross, but that's not the perspective of Hebrews. The Son's work reaches its climax when he enters into the Father's presence after his ascension from earth. 
And even then, he continues to have a ministry there on our behalf. Well, since it's been uh, over seven months since we were in the book of Hebrews, let me quickly recap and get us up to speed. The book begins with one of the greatest sentences in all of Scripture. That sentence begins this way. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by or in the Son. And the rest of the book is best read as a sermon expounding this statement. And uh, that would make a wonderful sermon for Ascension Day. And the preacher repeatedly quotes Israel's scriptures, what God spoke in the past through the prophets, to clarify how he has spoken to us in this one who is in the category of son, a category of just one, this son who is unique. And as I said in one of my sermons last summer, he shows us um, this is that. So Peter began his Pentecost sermon like this. This which is happening now on, here on Pentecost morning is that which Joel declared as the word of the Lord. And so, similarly, the preacher of Hebrews shows repeatedly that this which God has spoken in the Son was anticipated in that which God spoke in the past. Now, we can't go from that to this. We can't read Israel's scriptures and see how they are going to be fulfilled in the Son. But once we hear this, the word spoken in the Son, we can go back to that and see how it anticipated Jesus. The preacher continues his first sentence with a summary exposition of the superior word spoken in the Son. He makes seven statements about the Son. Whom he appointed heir of all things. Secondly, through whom also he made the universe. Thirdly, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Fourth, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Fifth, after he had provided purification for sins. Sixth, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And seventh, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Well, this raises some questions, at least it does for me. If the Son was the agent through whom God made the entire universe, wasn't the Son already superior to the angels? And his becoming superior to the angels seemed to be associated with him sitting down at God's right hand with Ascension Day. And how and when did he provide purification for sins? This too seems to be associated with him taking his seat with Ascension Day. And then after this magnificent opening sentence, the preacher uses seven quotations from Israel's scriptures to show the superiority of the Son to the angels. And the final one of these seven quotes is from Psalm 110. It's verse 1, the most quoted verse in the New Testament. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Again, we have the Son's session at the Father's right hand. Ascension Day yet again. Now the preacher interrupts his exposition of the superiority of the Son to give a word of exhortation coupled with a warning, the beginning of chapter 2. He urges us to, quote, pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For how shall we escape 
if we neglect so great a salvation. So what we have heard is the good news of salvation, declared to us by the Lord, attested by the ear witnesses, those who heard Jesus in person, and validated by the Holy Spirit. And this is the pattern of Hebrews. The preacher alternates between exposition of the Son and exhortations to us to persevere in faithfully following Him. We see Jesus in the expositions and we're urged to carry on believing as we carry on our life, like Thomas. We come now to the second block of expositions, chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, and uh, we'll be in this for these next two Sundays. Now, long ago, Gregory the Great, um, echoing earlier words from Jerome, uh, wrote this, Scripture is like a river again, broad and deep, shallow enough here for the lamb to go wading, but deep enough there for the elephant to swim. Uh, Much repeated quote. Now, when it comes to Hebrews, I still feel like a lamb paddling in the shallows. But in two weeks' time, we'll get to hear from one who has spent four decades swimming in the depths of the book. George Guthrie, professor of New Testament at uh, Regent College, uh, who's an expert on the book of Hebrews, and he will be our guest preacher on the 30th. And we're bringing him down for our annual pastoral staff retreat that week um, to spend the week uh, in Hebrews. Well, after his word of exhortation, the preacher picks up from the end of chapter 1, where he had said that it was not angels whom God invited to sit at his right hand. Instead, the angels are busy. They're busy sent out to serve those who will inherit salvation, us who hear and respond to the word spoken in the Son. So now we come to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. Um, and I'm going to read from the NIV, and you also have it printed on your little uh, worship sheet. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels, you crowned them with glory and honor, and put everything under their feet. Now, if perhaps you're reading along in ASV, you may notice some significant difference. The third-person pronoun occurs in each of the five lines quoted. NIV renders four of them as plural, them. ESV renders them all as singular, him. And in the first line has man instead of mankind. So which is correct? What's going on here? Well, it's not a simple answer. There is a place where someone has testified. Now, the preacher knows full well that this is Psalm 8 attributed to King David, which we heard as our call to worship. And David has been looking up the sky in wonderment. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, and then he looks at himself, or rather at mankind in general, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? A few days ago, I watched uh, New Eye on the Universe, the recent uh, PBS Nova episode about the James Webb Space Telescope. There's a vast difference in scale between the cosmos and us humans. 
Now, a million miles out there in space is a tiny speck, this amazing telescope. It's a distant outpost of human civilization. But on a cosmic scale, that's no distance at all. Nevertheless, humanity has been able to build this instrument and put it out there. And from its to us distant perch, it peers into the farthest reaches of the cosmos, farther than anyone has seen before. Well, as the psalmist reflects on humanity against the backdrop of God's heavens, he is amazed that God should think so much of us, that he should have such lofty purposes for humanity. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hand and put everything under their feet. And again, Psalm 8, NIV consistently uses plural pronouns, ESV uses singular. Now, in writing Psalm 8, David was reflecting on Genesis 1, and perhaps you picked that up as Eugene read Psalm 8 for us earlier, echoes of the language of Genesis 1. God created mankind, ha-adam, the human, in his own image. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. Now in Psalm 8 then, it is clear that David is referring to humanity as a whole. Man, in Hebrew and Greek and in English until recently, could be used in the gender-specific or gender-inclusive way. But now man is heard primarily in a gender-specific way. And so I support how NIV has chosen to translate Psalm 8 in a gender-inclusive manner. And this is one of the reasons why I preach out of the NIV, not the ESV. Because I want women to hear that you are fully included in the text. And it helps that the translation committee behind the NIV includes women, whereas the ESV, by design, does not. Now, in light of Genesis 1, the statement that David makes about humanity are synonymous, and they are simultaneous. Humans are a little lower than the angels, who are heavenly beings in God's presence, but humans are above all other earthly creatures. Humans are crowned with glory and honor, these latter terms, glory and honor, being closely associated with rule. And all earthly creatures are under the rule of humans. So, Genesis 1, Psalm 8, affirm these three aspects about humanity, which are simultaneous. But the preacher in Hebrews now expounds this quote from Psalm 8, doing so in light of Psalm 110, verse 1, his previous quote. So verse 8, in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them, yet at present we do not see everything subject to them. The pronouns again are singular, and NIV again translates them into plurals, them, three times. But there's a disconnect here between the vision and the reality, between the grandeur of Genesis 1 and Psalm 8 and what we see today, between what humanity was created for and humanity's current condition. God put everything under human beings, all the creatures of all three realms, the sea, the sky, and the land, but that's not what we see. 
Humanity has failed to live up to God's creation intent. Humanity has frustrated the purposes for which God created it. We do not see humanity as we ought. But now the preacher switches from what we don't see to what we do see in verse 9. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So now the preacher rereads Psalm 8 in light of the sun. And he splits apart the psalmist's three statements about humanity. And he reads them as three separate sequential events concerning the one man whom now he names for the first time in the sermon, Jesus. And read this way, all the pronouns in verses 6 through 8 are singular. Him, that is, Jesus. Him who is made a little lower than the angels is Jesus. In Psalm 8, made lower than the angels is exaltation above the rest of creation. But in the person of Jesus, being made a little lower than the angels is descent. Here we have the mystery of the incarnation. That the eternal Son, present in the Godhead before the beginning, should step down, should humble himself and enter into human history as one of us. Him who is crowned with glory and honor is Jesus, whom we now see. And here, as in Psalm 8, the glory and honor are associated with rule, the rule of the one who is crowned. When did this happen? At the ascension. Now, in three weeks' time, on May 6th, uh, Charles III and Camilla will be crowned king and queen of the United Kingdom. So since I'm still a, a UK citizen, uh, they will be my, uh, Charles III is already my, my monarch, um, technically. So the coronation will be in Westminster, where monarchs have been crowned since 1066. So we've got some very ancient history here. Uh, he will sit in the throne of the, um, the ancient coronation chair, which is over 700 years old. And uh, there he'll be crowned with St. Edward's crown. That's only 350 years old, uh, replacing um, a crown that was destroyed in the English Civil War. Um, so, uh, there'll be great rejoicing in the UK in three weeks. Now, at his ascension, Jesus entered into God's very presence, sat down at God's right hand, and there he was crowned. He was crowned with glory and honor. He who was made lower than the angels, there in chapter 2, verse 9, has been, now become superior to the angels, chapter 1, verse 4. The Son, pre-existent with the Father, His agent of all creation, was made lower than the angels, incarnate as Jesus the man. And then without putting off His humanity, He is now returned to the Father, becoming superior to the angels as the God-man, as Jesus the Son. So we see Jesus who is made lower than the angels, now crowned. But we do not yet see the third stage. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, to Jesus. Bringing in Psalm 110, which is quoted at the end of chapter 1, 
God said unto him, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We do not yet see until, until the, th the third stage is yet future. Jesus, already enthroned in heaven, will return to earth to receive his inheritance, rule over all things. At Advent, we anticipate not only the first coming of Jesus, but his return, his second coming, the return of the king, his parousia to be present with us. So we see here a past, a present, and a future in the narrative trajectory of the sun, as previewed in Psalm 8. Now we see how this concerning the sun is that which the psalmist was talking about. In the past, this Jesus humbled himself, taking a position lower than the angels, becoming incarnate as Jesus, one of us. In the present, Jesus in his ongoing humanity is enthroned at God's right hand, superior to the angels. In the future, he shall come again to earth and all will be brought under his rule. The eternal son took on humanity and he did not put off that humanity when he returned to the Father's presence. Therefore, Psalm 8 with singular pronouns really is about him. He is the true human, the one perfect man who fulfills not just Psalm 8, but who fulfills the intent of Genesis 1. And at the hinge between the lowering below the angels and the exaltation above the angels to rule lies this statement. Because he suffered death. This is the extent of his self-emptying. He made himself nothing. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, as we heard from Philippians 2. He descended to earth into our story. He descended further into death, not just any death, but the most cruel, painful, humiliating, shameful death of all. He descended into Sheol, into Hades, into the realm of the dead. He descended as low as it was possible to go. In faithful obedience to the one who sent him. Therefore, therefore God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name. Because he suffered death, a death he did not deserve, death had no claim on him and had to let him go. It is because of this suffering of death that God has exalted him and has crowned him so that, so that there is a purpose here, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now, tasting death doesn't just mean a little nibble. It's an idiom meaning to fully experience. He fully experienced death so that it might be on our behalf. How do we avail ourselves of that? How does the death of death and the death of Christ work for us? By hearing this greater word that God has spoken in the Son. By seeing and believing like Thomas. By following him who has gone before us to open up the way into God's presence.
This is a remarkable text. In Psalm 8, David the psalmist riffs on Genesis 1 as he considers humanity's place in God's cosmos. Here in Hebrews 2, the preacher riffs on both Psalm 8 and Psalm 110 to help us see Jesus, to see Jesus so that we will come to believe, and having come to believe, that we will keep on believing, persevering in the life of faith as we follow Him, our Lord and our God. Now, skeptics wonder how one can possibly believe in the resurrection. But I think the greater wonder is the incarnation. Once you accept that God really entered into human history, that the eternal Son humbled Himself, took on human form, became one of us, and died, then I find the resurrection no problem at all. The son left his station there in God's presence, came to earth to be one of us, that we ultimately might become like him, be restored to God's presence. This is amazing grace. Well, it's fitting that we come to the table, that in light of this text, that we get to observe this feast, this one feast that we are commanded to do repeatedly, communion. And as we prepare for that, in preparation for that, I would like us to stand and together confess our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. And this Apostles' Creed that is shaped around this trajectory of Jesus. And we remind ourselves of and affirm this narrative arc of Jesus' life. So together we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified died and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of sins, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.